0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good morning. Can you hear me? Good? All right. I'm so thankful for this band. Uh, beautiful songs that they chose to sing today, that expresses the the truth of God's Word, and I'm grateful for that. Well, this summer, we are going to take a break from Ephesians. We're going to go to Jonah. So I invite you to open the Bible in Jonah. We're going to start with chapter 1. So our preaching team is tasked to come here before you, congregation, to preach the book of Jonah. So I will read chapter 1 for us, the whole chapter. We're going to be studying this book together. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come up upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what of, people, what of people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rolled hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Well, who doesn't like a good story? As my parents grow older, they love to tell stories about themselves and about the past and all the highlights of their lives. Sometimes I love to listen. But also, there's nothing like a good book, a good storybook, in which a skilled author crafts images and scenarios that drives our emotions through peaks and valleys. A well-developed character in a narrative is that kind of character that you can talk about them better than you talk about a friend or even a family member. All the details of a good story matter and they drive us, the readers, to know more, go deeper into who this author is. Narration, dialogues, poetry, climaxes. Each part of a story drives us deeper into the mind of the author. The Book of Jonah is that kind of story. A narrative that engages us to read in such a way that we don't wanna drop the book, we wanna finish it. So I encourage you today to go home, and read the book of jonah from cover to cover <laughs> read it over and over and over again it's a short book it's not going to take you long but read it and pay attention to the details you will find that it's thrilling funny sad scary dramatic emotional and like any good story it leaves us with a cliffhanger wondering what's going to happen what's going to happen with these characters but also it is A Bible story. And like any other narrative in the Bible, it's the authoritative Word of God, narrated to us for our good. It is the splendor of God's character that makes this story great. So, we will take a break from Ephesians, and during the four Sundays in the summer, we're going to study the book of Jonah. I will introduce you to the characters and to the settings and the background here in chapter 1, Brother Charles, he will lead us to this beautiful poetry in chapter two, the prayer of Jonah. Brian is going to teach us on chapter three and the message, the short but precise message of Jonah to the Ninevites. And Chris, Chris Garnett, is going to close us in chapter four, expounding this profound work of God in Jonah's heart. And that's the plan for our summer. So four sermons on each chapter. But today for chapter one. We will begin by following the story, the beginning of the story, and we're going to follow the structure of the story here in chapter one. So we're going to have six different scenes. So, yes, my, my sermon has six points. Don't worry. It's not going to take six hours, just one. But hold tight. We, we, can, we can go through this. We will embark then in the summon, the strategy, the storm, the source, and the solution, and the salvation. Six. So we have the summon, the strategy, the storm, the source, the solution, and the salvation. We have six S's, and with each one of them, we are going to learn about the sovereignty of the Lord and how He is the one orchestrating everything in this story. His will is in the midst of much turmoil. So let us then begin with the summon, the word of the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord came. That's how the text begins. The book starts with this little word now that we tend to think it's, it's insignificant. Let me just skip over and continue reading. However, this word pushes us to think outside the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is inserted not in the vacuum, but in a much larger story. It is the history of Israel and the love of God for his chosen people as means to make his name great among all the nations. As Christians, we also read it, knowing that the Word of the Lord became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Christ, the incarnate Word of God, identifies Himself as the sign of Jonah, as the chosen one of God, who therefore is the key that unleashes all the meaning for this story. There's no way we can interpret this story without Christ. As any other book in the Bible, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah, it's about God. And it is his words that initiate the story. The text doesn't say, doesn't tell us the mode in which the word came. But it says that it came. And it did not come at random. It came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I don't know if you knew that, but Jonah means dove. A bird that symbolizes peace. Like Noah, for example, he threw out a bird, a dove, to see if it was safe or not to leave the ark. And like the Holy Spirit that was sent by the Father, descended as a dove as Christ was being baptized, symbolizing the ministry of peace that Christ was about to start. Well, ironically enough, Jonah, the dove, is quite antagonistic to this theme of peace. Considered all the chaotic events that he puts himself in. Storms, being swallowed by a big fish, having to declare destruction upon a city. Being deprived from comfort when he's outside of the city? That is, if Jonah means peace, why so much lack of it throughout the book? That is precisely what the meaning of this story is. The Christ, Jonah, the dove, is a representative. It's a sign of peace that is to come. There is peace to come. He is the sign of peace, the dove. Peace itself is only found by abiding in the word of God and obeying it. This peace is offered throughout the book, not only chapter 1, throughout the book. If you read the book, you're going to see the lines of peace being offered to people. And all they have to do is listen to it, believe in it, and obey it. In the midst of chaos, sin, destruction, and despair, God appoints through his word a sign of peace a way out. Despite Jonah, God's word is being fulfilled, and there is peace to be found in this book. The Lord then speaks, summoning Jonah for a very, very specific task. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Well, that seems quite simple. It is a task very precise, direct, clear, Jonah, one of the prophets of God, all he had to do is get up, go, and bring destruction, a word of destruction, upon the Ninevites. Jonah, Nineveh, is the capital of Assyria, a kingdom known by its evil deeds and oppression over other kingdoms, including Israel. So they are the kind of guys that were oppressing and beating them up. They're not the good guys. Oh, poor them. No, they're bad. Everybody wanted to see them down. And that is precisely what God tells Jonah to do. Any ambassador would love to do that. Be sent out to the enemy, point to their faces and say, you will be destroyed for all the harm you're causing us. There's fire coming on you. Wait up. But that is not the Jonah that we find in the next scene. It's not a Jonah excited about doing what God wants It is a Jonah that based on chapter 4 that we're going to see later on, it's a Jonah that is actually fleeing. He doesn't want to do that. Imagine, for example, a Jew in the 1930s going to Nazi Germany, being tasked to bring destruction upon that people. Many have died doing just that. But many also were fearful and scared because that people could kill them. However, the scene that follows is not a Jonah excited about God's call. But what what we know in chapter 4 is that Jonah worried not about the content, the destruction of God's word, but about the effect of it. He loved the content, destruction, suffering, his enemies dying. He loved that, but he did not like the effect, a chance for them to repent and be spared. What God asks for His people is to speak wrathful truth with compassion and hope. But how hard is it for us to do this? We tend to focus on one or another. We show compassion without truth or without the truth, without compassion. But some people, they choose neither. They don't do anything. They plan and they strategize to avoid both. I don't want either to speak truth. Or to be compassionate. I want to flee. I want to run. In which category are you today? This morning? Jonah. Jonah, he was this third one. He was strategizing a way out. And what was his strategy? That is our second point. The strategy. Fleeing from the Lord. We find that in verse verse 3. When the Lord speaks because he just spoke, we only have two options. You either follow or you flee. We try to come up with more, but we either obey it or we disobey it. There's no way out. The most common way for us to teach Jonah, especially to our kids or people that don't know the the word, we always say, don't be like Jonah. You don't have to be like Jonah. You have to be better than Jonah. But in our self-righteousness, we puff up and think that he's silly, trying to run from God. But notice how Jonah is in fact a representation of our own foolish strategies to escape God's clear commands. The only thing Jonah actually obeys is that get up and go. Everything else is the extreme opposite of what God tells him what to do. Look, look with me in the text. While God says that the evil of Nineveh came up before him, Jonah goes down to the port. Instead of going to Nineveh, he decides to go to Tarshish. The extreme opposite, geographically, the extreme opposite direction. His heart and his will are in a mission to escape. The narrative here is contrasting the will of God and the will of man. Which one do you think will prevail? If we just stop here and we read the narrative, we really think that he is prevailing, that Jonah is prevailing. All his strategies are working. And it almost seems like God is opening the doors for his great stealthy plan to escape his presence. Everything goes in accordance with his strategy. He gets to Joppa safely, he finds a ship to Tarshish in a context where ships were very far in between. It's not like going to a taxi station and getting a taxi like this. No, it's not calling Uber and getting an Uber right next, right, the next minute. No, for you to find a ship at a, at a station it was hard. And there he was, everything working out. <laughs> And he pays for a ship to Tarshish. This is important, because the ships to Tarshish, they were known for their splendor and their wealth. The prophet Isaiah says, "There is a day coming for the Lord of Armies, a day against everyone who is proud and arrogant, against everyone who is lifted up, he will be pressed down against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful ships." The the pride of mankind will be humbled, and the arrogance of man will be brought low. Then the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Brothers and sisters, the appearance of open doors, of success, of comfort, does not necessarily mean that we are in the path of obedience. It may actually mean the extreme opposite. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Tarshish was the city of wealth and status, the extreme opposite of the evilness and of oppression of Nineveh. Like Jonah, we enter in our fancy boats and we are comfortable. We have our space, we have a crew, we have servants and money. The comforts of life tend to blur the commands of God. We adorn our hatred of the distant evil of others with our own evil of pride and comfort. We think, their evil is certainly worse than mine, God. Of course they are worse than mine because you have predicted destruction for them and not for me. Jonah, much like us, he thinks that he can escape the will of the Lord by overindulging in his blessings. But little did he know that despite his intention for gospel ministry, God, he was sovereignly accomplishing his mission of bringing salvation to the Gentiles. A commentator says this, the mission that God has for his people is often quite different than the mission statement that we write for ourselves. Let me repeat that. The mission that God has for his people is often quite different than the mission statement that we write for ourselves. We may come up with a thousand and one reasons not to do what God wants from us. But no matter the sin, no matter the depravity of our lives, God's wrathful destruction is certainly awaiting. Here comes the storm, our third point. The storm, the wrath of the Lord in verse 4. This is a part of this story where the soundtrack of the movie kicks up. It's thrilling. It's not joyful anymore. It's thrilling. It's lifting our hearts up for the tension that is about to come. The sounds of thunders, heavy rain, ranging sea, flood the scene. Notice that the intensity of the description, hurl the great wind, a mighty tempest, the ship threatening to break. This is to add intensity to the scene. But the main detail, the highlight, the intensity, is that the mariners were afraid. The text says that the mariners, they were very afraid. This word afraid is very important in our text today. It repeats itself three times. This first time, it means the unescapable fear of death. Now think with me, these were no freshman sailors. Captain and crew, they knew what they are doing. They spent their lives on the sea. Most of them have experienced many storms in their careers. Have you ever been through, for example, turbulence on an airplane? If you see around you, everybody's shaking and fearful that the plane's going to fall down. But if you look at the flight attendants, they're calm and at peace. Because they know that turbulence doesn't bring a plane down. But if you are in an airplane, calm and quiet, and you look at a flight attendant, probably a Catholic flight attendant, and he's doing this. <laughs> Believe me, it's coming. They're scared because they know what brings a plane down. And that's the kind of fear that these guys were having here. This is no normal storm. This storm is different. It rages death. Because we know that it's Jonah's fault, we tend to pity the sailors. Poor guys. They have nothing to do with the disobedience of Jonah. And they're here scared for their lives. But brothers and sisters, when God deals with unrepentant sin in the lives of his chosen one, those around us they will suffer and they will hurt. And it all seems so unfair. Our sin, our sin offends God, but also puts others in harm's way. I know that many of us experience God's rod of discipline in our lives already. In such a way that family members, friends, and even members in our own community, they experience the consequences of the wrath of God upon us. I say that because I have. And it hurts. It's not easy. When you sin, it hurts your family. When your family sins, it hurts you. Storms in the Bible, they do not represent trials and unavoidable suffering that we have to pray for the Lord to rescue us from. No. No. This storm here is the good justice and the wrath of God upon his disobedient prophet. Like a loving father physically disciplining his toddler son while grandma is crying and her eyes out out of pity, so does God discipline us. Every time we remain unrepentant in our sin. Hebrews 12:7 says, It is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? While God disciplines his own, the world is looking around and seeing all the turmoil and the death and sickness and division and animosity. And they search for a reason. Why? Why am I suffering? Why is all this happening to us? Why? What is the source of all this? And that is our next scene, the search a need for the lord verses 5 through th- 10 we see this search this storm cannot be a coincidence it's too destructive to be a simple change of weather in the despair their first action if you notice in the text the first thing they do is religion they all have different gods and they cry out they cry out each to their own the idea of all religions leading to the divine is not recent. These sailors are quite progressive in their acceptance of our religions. We Christians, we know that all other deities are false. We know that our God is the true God. We know that everything is false, but it's a human recognition. It is a human reaction to appeal to the spiritual realm when the unknown is upon us. We pray even without knowing to who. Human beings pray, not only Christians pray, everybody prays, but the difference is they pray to a false god. Many skeptic philosophers, they say that religion is good because it softens the pressure of the unknown from our lives, and we transfer it to this transcendent realm and pretend that it's real for a moment, just to feel better about ourselves. But How nonsensical is that? Knowing that you believe in a lie? but remaining in it just for the sake of fake comfort? Try that when the ship is sinking. The sailors did, and it did not work. Their despair continued, and they now appeal for science. Lighten the load, I imagine the captain crying out to them in the midst of the storm. Line it up, throw everything down. Let's make the boat lighter to float easier. Their precious goods, food, supplies, weapon... All treasures of Tarshish are not thrown in sea. In desperate moments, our priorities really show up. The logical concept of science is yet another failed attempt to save their lives. A world without answers still knows that life is precious and anything is worthless in comparison to our lives. No one wants to die. The attempt to prolong our lives is another evidence of our need for eternal. In Christ, we see the first physical human being prolonging his life into eternity by means of his resurrection. Our human longing of physical eternity, of living forever, can only be accomplished and fulfilled if our spirits are brought to life. The physical and the spiritual, they're connected. The spiritual is if the spirit is alive, alive. The physical is alive forever. Christ accomplished that, and he offers that to us. Do you want to live forever? Well, science does not have the answer. So where is it? Where is the answer? They keep on searching. Our sailors, our poor sailors, they keep on searching, and they finally find Jonah asleep. And here is where we find the humorous and comic part of our story. What do you mean, you sleeper? They say. The captain says, In other words, you gotta be kidding me, man. Are you crazy? We are at the edge of death and you're there snoring. That's gotta be a joke. In the midst of this humorous dialogue, though, I believe that we find a very powerful contrast in this story. The Gentile sailor, the captain, Gentile, does not know God. Unaware of what he's saying, he commends Jonah to arise, he uses this same exact word that God used to call Jonah, to summon Jonah. Have you ever listened to a song that brought you to a time in your life? Or have you ever smelled something that brought you to a specific location that you have visited? I strongly believe that that's what Jonah is going through right now. That word arise brought him back to what the Lord had said to him. It is a scent, but instead of being pleasant and beautiful, it's sharp and painful. He's left speechless. Jonah doesn't say anything in this, in this dialogue here. He doesn't even respond. He's speechless. The process of repentance starts when the word of the Lord is remembered by his people. Those who he has chosen, his people, the prophet, Represented here by Jonah, when they sin, we have to remember the conviction is going to be so imminent that we are going to remain speechless, prayerless. If you have ever sinned so grievously in your life, you know that when the Lord convicts you, you cannot even pray, you cannot even come to before His throne of grace. You're left speechless. But we remember, and that's when the Holy Spirit starts to work in our hearts. If you have sinned against the Lord in a specific way, and may be asleep, unrepentant, not considering the consequences of your actions to yourself and to those around you, I pray that today is the day of remembrance. Listen to God's word and remember his calling. Jonah is there, speechless. The sailors, though, continue their search. We're not going to wait for you to answer. Let us do something. They draw sticks. They toss a coin. Luck is their last resource. The text says that they cast lots. So the practice of casting lots is not uncommon in the world at that time. Matter of fact, it's not uncommon amongst God's people. A book, for example, like 1 Samuel, we see that they cast lots to find out who's guilty. In our context here, that's what they're doing. They also cast lots lots to find out who's the king in 1 Samuel. So the act of casting lots is not a silly act at that time. It's actually a very precise divination act at that time. So they do that. They do just that. They cast lots. And the lot falls on who? On Jonah. He got caught. Remember that little scent that he smelled before? He just got stronger. The word of the Lord came to Jonah again. In this scene, the next scene, we see several questions from the sailors. If you read by yourself there in your Bible, you're going to see they ask, Where do you come from? What is your occupation? And he just got caught by the casting of lots. I imagine him reflecting back on the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, as a flashback. If you watch a movie, you know what a flashback is. He's remembering the past while everything is happening around him. It's a flashback of Leviticus 16. And there we read about the scapegoat chosen by the casting of lots to the atonement of the sins of the people. The chosen goat was not to be sacrificed, but to stay alive and to be cast out from the presence of the Lord for the sake of the people. The, Lord, the word of the Lord is again brought into Jonah's memory, and now he can no longer remain silent. He confesses. He answers the question of the sailors about his identity. And here, every story has a climax. Every story has that peak, the moment of truth. Here, we find the climax of our story. The name of the Lord is for the first time pronounced by the mouth of one of the characters. The main character of this story is finally put into action on the words of those in the story. Verse 10 gives us a very precise hint that Jonah had previously mentioned about his running from the presence of the Lord before. Maybe while they're going in the boat or while having fun in the boat. He probably mentioned while you're here, they ask common questions. He probably mentioned, I'm running from the presence of the Lord. But the details there in the original language, he did not use the name of the Lord then. He used a gem- general term for God, just like they used for their own gods, Elohim. It's just a general term. It wasn't Yahweh, the name of the Lord. It wasn't. But this time is different. The sailors, they have no more doubt why this is happening to them. The God of Israel, the maker of heavens and earth, the one true God is always and will be always the orchestrator. Of everything that happens. Even our despair. And that realization drives them to fear again. This is the second time that we see the word fear. But this time their fear is not about the magnitude of the storm. This time their fear is about the magnitude of the storm maker. Of the one doing, practicing the storm, creating the storm. When the one true God, the God of the Bible, not any other God, any other God, when the one true God is introduced to people, we present His name to people, fear is the only rightful response. If such a God is real and we remain in our sin, there's no way of escape. There's no innocence about not knowing God, but the culpability of those that know Him and conceal Him, that's even greater. Here you are today in a church that loves the Bible and teaches it clearly every single Sunday. The gospel, I can affirm to you, the gospel is proclaimed in this church every single Sunday to you. What will the day of judgment be like for you to have such constant and clear access to the gospel? Will you conceal it to yourself while others perish for their own sin and without knowing who the Lord is? Or will you proclaim it? We will proclaim the one true God, the one true gospel to everybody. And if you're here today and you do not know this God, maybe this is the first time you're actually being presented to the one true Yahweh, God. What are you going to do? You know that he's a wrathful God of justice. Will you follow him and know more? Or will you flee and run away? The sailors in our story, they wanted to know more. They surely did. They look at Jonah after finding out everything that Jonah did, and they they ask, you knew such God and you still fled from him? What shall we do now? What shall we do to save ourselves? What is the solution? That is our fifth point, the solution. It is to appease the Lord. Cast away this scapegoat, the scapegoat for the Lord. Verses 11 through 15 we find this theme here. We find and we learn three things about repentance. So there's three lessons that we find in this verses from 11 to 15 about the repentance of Jonah. First thing, true repentance recognizes the severity of the consequences. True repentance recognizes the severity of the consequences. Jonah understood now that he was the scapegoat. That the only way for this mess that he created to be appeased was for him to be thrown out. Like Achan in Joshua 7, after being caught in his sin, he confesses that he had kept some of the spoils of the war for himself. And what was the judgment? To be stoned to death, him and his family. We know that Jonah does not die. But in the story, he didn't know that. He thought that he was going to be thrown out to die in the sea. And he understood that. He knows that the severity of his sin, and he is willing to pay for the consequences of it. So the point is that the true repentance realizes the degree of the one being sinned against. It recognizes the degree of the punishment. Our sin deserves eternal consequences because we have sinned against an eternal God. Number two. True repentance makes others uncomfortable. True repentance makes others uncomfortable. No matter the sin, other, speci- other people, especially the church, will feel the blow. The sailors, they tried hard to have to not cast out Jonah. They were rowing hard. They were trying to get to shore, but nothing they did would make it work. They used their last energy, but finally they realized it had to be done. Brothers, when a sinner is convicted of sin, many will be participants of the process of transformation. If you think you are repentant of a sin and only you know it, reconsider if you are repentant. If you think you are truly repentant of your sin, maybe of lust, pride, gluttony, I don't know, you name it. If you think you are repentant, and only you know about it, reconsider if you're true repentant. You may think we quit, but true conviction will make others know based on the changes of your speech and on your behavior. And thirdly, the third lesson that we learn about repentance is that true repentance makes us trust the sovereignty of God. In the contracts that we talk about, about the will of God and the will of man, guess what? God prevail. His will will always prevail. You think not, but it will. Don't fool yourself. The sailors, they are no longer praying to the unknown gods. They now know the name of the Lord. And based on Jonah's confession and the evidence of his true repentance, they trust God, Yahweh. They trust in his sovereignty. And look at their first request, uh, request. the first time that they ever pray to the one true God. They say, let us not be guilty of this man's blood, because you do as you please. They do not blame God for their suffering. They trust God for their rescue. The storm that appeared to be their death because of Jonah's repentance is the means that God uses to demonstrate his love towards the sailors. They want to appease the Lord, church, when we repent, the Lord uses our repentance for the possible salvation of the Gentiles. He People are going to look at our repentance. And they're going to see that the Lord is being appeased. And they are going to witness who the one true God is. But not only that. Our repentance is also for our own good. The Lord restores Jonah. He puts us back on track. The Lord is not only interested in saving the lost, but also restoring His church, making us new, making us pure. That leads us to our, third, to our sixth and final point. The salvation. Worship the Lord. That is verses 16 and 17. Well, I know that it has been a very heavy story so far. <laughs> I think I brought a lot of heaviness to your heart. Because believe me, as I meditated on this story, on this text, my heart was so heavy for my own sins and also for the sins that we see in believers' lives around us today. Many many Baptist leaders have been caught on sexual sin, on depravity, fleeing from the Lord, fleeing from their command of taking care of the sheep and abandoning the sheep for their own sake. We have seen seminaries having to restructure, to think of ways to get back on track and follow the Lord. We also see many churches prioritizing culture acceptance over sound doctrine. And many other cases of depravity of Christians fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And that brings our hearts down. It makes us cry. It makes us grieve for the sins of the nations because we know that the wrath of the Lord is coming. But there's also much reason, many, many reasons for us to be glad and hopeful. Our story today ends with a happy ending. The sailors, they were twice afraid so far. And again, they come to fear a third time. This third time, their fear is not for the unknown or the imminent imminent destruction of God. But seeing, after seeing what happened, after they cast Jonah out on the boat, seeing that the, the storm was calmed down, seeing the evidence of what what was going on, they feared the Lord exceedingly. We may not know explicitly, the text doesn't say explicitly that they were converted. I can affirm that with 100% certainty from the exegesis of this text. But one thing I know, this fear is certainly the same as Jonah's fear in verse 9. The word is the same. The God is the same. This fear is a fear of submission, adoration, and awe. they offer sacrifices and they make vows no longer for the sin of Jonah, but their own sin, because now they know who God is and they know that they have to obey him. This is the kind of fear that God wants from the nations. If we proclaim his name rightly, if we proclaim his name wrongly, they will never be able to fear him in this way. This fear will remain for them, for their own destruction, or for the unknown, for what they don't know what's happening. We know that salvation comes by believing in the name of the Lord. But, like Paul says in Ro- to the Romans, how can they call upon whom they have never heard? So, preach boldly, Christian. You know this God, you know who he is. So, preach his name so that they can fear his name, even if they are not converted. They know, and they are without excuse. He may just use you and me, repentant, wrathful sinners, wicked, in our own weakness, in our own sin, to bring glory to his name and salvation to the world. But there's also restoration for Jonah. Charles, next week, he's going to expound on chapter 2, this beautiful prayer of Jonah and how he's being healed and contrite before the Lord. But God was merciful to him in our text. In our text, God rescues him from death. He thought he was going to die. But the Lord sends a fish and swallows him up and he goes into the belly of the fish. Famous story that we tell our kids. God was merciful. But there was also going to be, there were going to be three days of much discomfort and healing waiting for Jonah. Jonah's restoration is just as powerful as the submission of the Gentiles to the one true God. Jonah's restoration is our restoration. We don't preach, don't be like Jonah, because only Christ was able to accomplish that. We cannot tell anybody, don't be like this guy, because you are like this guy. There's nothing you can weigh to run away from your sin. The only thing you can do is repent and believe over and over again until he comes again. Christ was the only way, the only one able to do that. Christ, he did not flee from God's command to come down to earth when our evil came before the Lord. Christ, he did not sleep in the storm out of comfort like we read this morning. But he read, uh, he slept out of the certainty of his peace. He knew who he was and that that storm was not going to destroy anybody. He was not only a scapegoat in Christ, both the perfect lamb of the sacrifice and the atonement of our sins were offered. He chose to be cast away into death for my sake and for your sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was baptized into the waters and raised up again. He died and he was buried and he was stayed at, he stayed in his grave for three days. And three days later, he rose again to life that we can believe and fear him forever. In him, there is eternal life. We know his name. We, the church of Christ, we know his name is Jesus Christ, God, Yahweh, And that is the one we proclaim, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And Him we worship, our Lord, our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you may break our hearts as we realize and we understand the depths of our sin. Father, our sin... Is very, very grievous before your sight. But there's also so much that we don't understand, all the consequences and effects of it, not only upon ourselves, but everyone that we see around us family, friends, church, community, and society, culture itself is affected by the depths of our sin. Lord, look upon us with mercy. We beg you. Help us to repent by the power of your Holy Spirit. Cause in us to remember the words of the Lord. That we may know that you are great and your wrath is powerful. But there's so much forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If only we remember. If only we remember the words of the Lord. We pray all these things in the one true God's name. Jesus Christ, the one we worship forever. Amen.